there are only a handful of guitar players in the entire world who are instantly recognizable when you hear them. Eddie Van Halen, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton. When you hear those guys, you know exactly who you're listening to. Whereas everybody else kind of sounds pretty much like everybody else. But then you have some guys who are so unique and multifaceted that the greatest names in music go to these guys first to make them sound even better. And when you hear them, they are just as recognizable as some of the greatest musicians in history. And when some of the greatest musicians in history refer to you as being one of the greatest in history, it might be because you are among one of the greatest in history as well. Today's guest is Adrian Ballou. Adrian's career has taken him from playing in Midwestern cover bands to being discovered by Frank Zappa, then being hired by David Bowie, then King Crimson, Talking Heads, and then to a critically praised solo career. He's also done session work with the Tom Tom Club, Paul Simon, Cindy Lauper, Laurie Anderson, Joe Cocker, Nine Inch Nails, and there was also the wonderful side project known as The Bears. Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails once called Adrian Ballou the most awesome musician in the world, and it's very hard to argue against that. Adrian Ballou is about to release his 25th solo album this summer. It's called Elevator, and Adrian will talk about that record and a whole lot more. This is my conversation with the great Adrian Ballou on Baxi's Musical Podcast. You and I almost met like 31 years ago, and I'm and I'm I'm I know you don't remember this, so let me explain what happened. It's uh, it's 1990, and uh, you and David Bowie are playing at Summerfest in Milwaukee. Uh, at an amphitheater just off of Lake Michigan. And uh, I was working for a radio station at the time, and we're walking around the amphitheater, and lo and behold, there's there's David Bowie, and he's talking to a couple of people. He may, you may even have been there for all I remember, but, you know, when, you, when you're standing next to David Bowie, really the only thing you see is David Bowie. And we, <laughs> <laughs> you got you like a solar eclipse, and he's the only thing you're actually looking forward to, looking into. And uh, so we asked him, you know, could we spend, you know, five minutes of his time interviewing him? And he, he said, well, you can have an interview with me and Adrian Ballou, provided that your radio station is playing his brand new song, Pretty Pink Rose, which we were not. And we made the, the egregious mistake of answering him honestly. And, <laughs> and he said, he said, well, then I, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be able to talk to you guys. So we... We walked away completely dejected uh, after our souls have been crushed. But then, on the other hand, part of me was thinking, how cool is that that David Bowie, you know, cares enough about another guy and Adrian Ballou to say, hey, you know what? If you're not supporting him, I can't support you. In a way, I kind of I couldn't feel too bad about it. But I just thought, man, what? A, clearly, there was a friendship between you and David Bowie that really meant something to him. I just thought that was a fascinating situation that happened. Well, you should have asked me because I would have said yes without even thinking about whether or not you played my music. <laughs> you you wouldn't have said, I don't know, do you play Suffragette City? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have done that. <laughs> Pretty Pink Rose was David's single, 
and he wrote the song, and he and I put, you know, did the video together, so we shared in it. And of course, both of us were very interested in seeing it do well. Uh, and uh, but it didn't matter. I mean, regardless, yes, we were very close friends, and uh, and David was that kind of person. He would look out for his friends, and uh, when he, you knew him as a personal friend. All the all the walls came down, of course, and you <laughs> just you know loved the guy, and he liked you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, that was one of those records in in 1990 that I probably played continuously for a couple of years. I mean, I, I mean, I knew that album so well. We got a promotional copy at the station, and I loved that. I loved every every track on 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 that record. And we went to go see David Bowie that night. And I, obviously, you know, you you David Bowie is a tremendous performer but i found myself focusing a lot on you because you know not only were you clearly enjoying yourself but you I mean you were doing things on a guitar that most people i don't think have ever even thought of never mind the 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 noises and the and the and the the, the musicality of it but i mean you're squeezing this guitar and you know dry humping it and and you're just doing everything you can to just get as much out of that instrument as possible i found you almost just mesmerizing to watch because I don't think a lot of people in that amphitheater had ever heard anybody play guitar like that. Yeah, my wife said the same thing. That's the you know that's the tour that I met her on uh, in Orlando at the Peabody Hotel after our show in the lobby, and she said the same thing. She said, "Well, I didn't know you from anyone, but you were the one guy I kept watching." <laughs> <laughs> and and David never said never said to her. Well, I can have you date Adrian Ballou, provided, of course, you've played Pretty Pink Rose. <laughs> <laughs> no, he he didn't meet her right off the bat, but eventually he did. <laughs> I think the first time I became aware of you is I, I saw King Crimson play on this on this television show on ABC back in 81 called Fridays. And you guys played two songs on on that show. The first one was being Elephant Talk. And I you know I had been a Yes fan, you know, in high school and I I, I certainly knew Bill Bruford. But I'm watching this performance and, and and actually watched it again on 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 YouTube, you know, between you and Tony Levin and and, and Robert Fripp and I'm just thinking, my god, has has there ever been a band with more talent between four guys ever? And I'm not sure I can I can claim that. It's like Every great band's got one guy who's just, uh, you know, kind of the weak link. But in that band, not not a chance. Unbelievable performance for you, by you guys. Thank you. Uh, I remember it all of that very well, of course, including the fact that the director saw me waving my guitar in front of the amp in Thela Hunjinjit and said, do you do that? On, you're going to do that every time? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, we're going to put a camera right there so we can catch you doing that. I do remember Robert... Uh, at one point, while we were touring around the band in that era, 1981 through 84, with that quartet, we did, you know, three world tours and three records. That was the aim to begin with. Right. And somewhere along the line, after we'd done enough dates, Robert said to me one day, I think this is probably the best live band in the world. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, well, I don't really know who else would be better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you compare it to? I mean, again, you know, the, the kind of craftsmanship between all four of you is astounding. And he, you know, and these are not complicated. I mean, these, these are very complicated songs that you're playing and this isn't, you know, this isn't like you're playing love me do by the Beatles. This is, this is hard stuff. And yet you guys just, you know, master it 
What, you know, doing it on a record is one thing. Doing it live and then doing it on TV, which you guys did not do a whole lot of, was really remarkable. Well, we always managed, uh, as part of our writing, we always decided, you know, whatever we're going to put on the record, let's let it be what we would play live. And in fact, whenever Robert and I would finish a song or a piece of music to a certain point and the band would take it from there and we'd start learning it, uh, we would always save those things until we went out and played them through live through one tour. Because then we would know, okay, this is working, this isn't working. So the final detailing would happen there. Uh, and even in the first record, we went out and played shows before we made Discipline, so we could do that. So that was part of the band, you know, was, you know, let's don't go in and make studio albums that you, you can't replicate. Let's, let's be a band playing live. And in the studio, we played live. We didn't separate out and say, okay, now the drummer takes his turn and so on. We were really a, a band that, that concentrated on live, and, and I think we always felt that the live performances were the most powerful aspect. Uh, the recordings were great, but they were just one recording. Right. Right. <laughs> Whereas when you go and play it live, uh, you know different things happen as the tour as the tour extends. It's also the first time I think in your career that you were, you know, where your your stamp as a songwriter was clearly felt. I mean, they had had successful songs and successful albums, but they were not songs that were particularly you know, as melodic as you have written songs going forward. I mean, this, I think it was the first time that you had a chance to really kind of stretch out as a songwriter, if, if I'm catching the timeline correctly on this. Well, you definitely are. Uh, from the beginning of, of teaching myself to play guitar, I taught myself to play because I had songs in my head I couldn't translate to the other members in the band. I was a drummer at the time, still love playing drums. So, Years later, when I'm in King Crimson, that was the first time, finally, all those years later, 12 or 15 years so, or, or so, that I was uh, asked to do the thing I had been preparing to do all that time, which is be the songwriter, be the lyricist, write the melodies, be the front man, the singer. Up to that point, I had been the backup guy for Frank Zappa, David Bowie, Talking Heads. Yeah. Great. Fantastic gigs, but none of them were asking me to do all of the things at once <laughs> that I could do. So King Crimson really was a huge leap for me um, for those reasons, but also because it suddenly turned into being King Crimson. When we started, it was a band. Robert said, would you like to start a band with me and Bill Bruford? Are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> Later, we auditioned Tony Levin, phenomenal player, and then... We thought we were going to be called Discipline. That's what Robert wanted to name it, but we didn't like the name. Right. Me and Tony especially said, no, 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 not Discipline. That In America, that connotates not not good things. <laughs> so eventually one day, uh, Robert walks in and okay, well, we're going to be called King Crimson then. Fair enough. <laughs> and for me, that changed everything in a heartbeat because I realized, oh, my God, well, King Crimson has a huge, you know, expectation with it. <laughs> and now you're going to be writing songs that are supposed to be, you know, very, I don't know, intelligent. They're supposed to at least represent the other people. You don't want to embarrass anyone. <laughs> you can't really write too much personal stuff if you're leading that kind of band. Wouldn't you, in a way, uh, want to take like the easy road and, you know, 
become the guitar player for you know Eddie Money or Thirty Eight Special instead, rather than take on these complicated compositions. I I, I heard an interview with with Bruford uh, a long time ago saying that every almost you know every project, every song, every day playing with King Crimson was a little bit frightening because you were just supposed to know what you were supposed to do, and it was like. It was it was it ran like no other band that he had ever been in, and especially you know coming from Yes and then going to to playing with you know Robert Fripp for for years, it just sounded like it like a totally different type of I don't know it's, if it's an organization, but just a totally different approach to being in a band. It, it certainly was. There were very few things that were allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always made the analogy that if you had a box of twenty four crayons, you would. You were for to be in King Crimson. You had to dump out all but six of them, and then you could paint. You could draw with those six crayons. <laughs> so there were a lot of things, musically speaking and otherwise, that just simply wouldn't fly in King Crimson. They would be on the editing floor before you knew what hit you. So right off the bat, you kind of learned what those what those expectations were and and went with it. You know, and and the effect was it it raised the level of commitment and the level of what the music would turn out to be. I mean, yeah, I could have played with Eddie Money, I guess, you know, but uh, wouldn't have been... I, I mean, I like everything I've done, so, you know, I'm not... You know, I've tried a lot of different things. King Crimson was the most difficult, but it was also one of the most rewarding, at least in terms of my growth and and things that happened for me. If you remember, just before that, I was playing with Talking Heads, and that was a really, really fun and easy band for me to play with. Uh, most of their songs are kind of one chord. <laughs> well, at least on the Remain and Light album, the, the one that I played on. Right. So if you're, you know, if you're the guitar player, soloist guitar player in the band, you're not the singer, the songwriter, none of that stuff, the front man. Man, what a gig. That's so much fun. But it was also... Um, of course, limiting to someone who is who is planning and writing songs and and had done that for a long time. Right. Well, with Re- Remain in Light, I mean that was a, a, I mean one it, it t- turned out to be a terrific record, but that was recorded uh, kind of like in bits and pieces, very you know Brian Wilson like in in a lot of ways. You played your part, and then that was you're done for the day. Well, when I stepped into the picture, and they asked me to come in to the studio for a day and work with them, Brian Eno, Jerry Harrison, and David Byrne. Chris and Tina, the rhythm section, were pretty, as you say, they were done. They weren't even in the studio that day. And I had one day. And the songs were, the songs were really, there were no songs. They were just tracks. There was no vocals, no idea where the chorus would be or what the melody was or anything else. So one of the best examples I always make is the song called The, the Great Curve. Yep. I remember Eno and, uh, and David saying, go out into the studio, put the headphones on, listen to the track for a while, and when you think there should be a guitar solo, play a guitar solo. <laughs> so that's what I did, and it you know, went really well. I could see them very excited, jumping around behind the screen in the, in the control room. So I thought... Okay, I'm going to let it play a little longer and put a second one in. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the idea was that they had already told me, David, we'll write the song around where you put the guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> strange way of doing it. Very strange. But yet, yet that song in particular is probably uh, you know the most hypnotic on the in- entire record. I mean, you know, Once in a Lifetime is a great one, but but 
but The Great Curve is probably one of my favorite songs on that record. One, because I know the moment you your your guitar is in that song, I know exactly who it is. I know exactly who's playing it. And that's that doesn't happen very often with a lot of guitar players. Like you, you know, you're so identifiable when 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 you play. And whether it's, you know, with between, you know, them or, you know, the Bears or, you know, anything else you've done. It's like, you know, when Adrian Ballou plays, I'm like, I can identify that from a mile and a half away. Well, that's really that's really um that's really something to be able to say that. I, I guess that's true. Uh, a lot of people that are close to me have said that. Rob Fetters from the Bears, for example, uh, played through my gear once and said, I can't sound like you even with your gear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's not what it's about. It's about your thought process, processes and how you put things together in your mind. He knew that, of course. We joked about it. But, you know, it is rare. I think most guitar players are are very much into what other guitar players are doing, trying to match that. You know, I notice that there's a lot of shredders who sound a lot alike. There's a lot of country guys who sound a lot alike, you know. Yep, yep. To not sound like anyone was what I was hoping for. So what I started from was after I had got to a point where I felt I knew what I was doing enough, I branched out and started doing things you're not supposed to do. One of the first things I did is I realized, well, if you use your little pinky and and use your volume control and you put these two notes together and you kind of bend (laughs) them a little bit, it can sound like a car horn. (laughs) And so I would be playing something somewhere in a club and I'd play a solo and all of a sudden I'd stick a little car horn in there and (laughs) the audience would giggle and I thought, okay, well, there you go. You got your foot in, in, in in the ocean there somehow. Well, let me ask you something. I mean, you said you were you were self taught, and and I know you know when you're a kid, you you came down with mono, and all of a sudden you're you're playing a guitar, and and you're teaching yourself how to play this. Had, had you gone through like traditional lessons or you know music college or or, or whatever? Oh gosh, no, 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 no. There, uh, there really wasn't even that. Well, I was from a pretty poor family, so there wasn't that choice to go to college for me. But there also wasn't a college that would teach what I wanted. Right. What I wanted to learn was right there on my little turntable. You know, right. I would put on anything that caught my ear, anything that sounded interesting to me, and I'd take it apart and try to figure out well, how are they doing that, how is he playing that, what is the arrangement, who's who, you know, who's doing what, and that was. That was entirely my education. I mean, I watched a few other local players, you know, but no one was really able to teach me anything. I learned everything by, by you know, listening to records. Um, and fortunately, I decided, well, I would, you know, I would spread out and, and try to try to know a little bit about different things. So I listened to some blues records. I listened to some Chet Atkins records, Andre Segovia records, things that weren't normally in my wheelhouse, as, as, as well as, you know, all the Beatles records and all the things. And then right after I started playing, you had all of a sudden you had the big guys come in, Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck. And then, you know, I was saying, well, wait a minute. Now maybe I'd like to do more than just write songs. Right. Well, what I'm saying, what I was getting at is, you know, had you gone down a more traditional road, you might not have been as experimental as you would become. You probably, you know, maybe it would have, you would have, you would not have figured out that there are things that you're not supposed to do to a guitar because some teacher told you, oh, you're not supposed to do that. Like it may have actually hurt you than helped you 
even though you, I, I don't, I mean, it's a, again, it's a gross assumption, but I would think in some cases, maybe that education might have been a hindrance to you. It, it probably was for me personally, because, you know, I use my imagination more than, than uh, some people do. As I say, there's a lot of people who basically copy other things. And I only did that to learn from. After that, I started thinking, what can I do differently? And when I joined Frank Zappa's band and he discovered me, at one point the music was getting pretty intense for me, and I was trying to learn it by rote. And I said, should I try to learn how to read music now, Frank? And he said exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I was reading about uh, <laughs> I was reading about Frank uh, discovering you, and I think it's it, – there, Every interview I've I've heard you do, um, you know, asks you about being discovered by by Frank Zappa, and I think it's an amazing story. But there's a part of it that I don't know if you've ever been asked because if Frank, you know, you're it's 1977, you're 28 years old. Frank Zappa walks into a bar, and there you are, and you're and in the middle of the show, Frank comes up to you and says, "Hey, I'd like you to join my band or audition for my band." What I have never heard anyone ask you is. Did you soil yourself at the very moment that Frank Zappa <laughs> comes up to you? No, I mean, you know, I remember afterwards we all celebrated. Everybody was really happy for me that maybe somebody in, in our world was going to get a break finally. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I, uh, I rose to the occasion because I saw him and I thought, well, you know, it excited me. You know, here's somebody to play for. <laughs> somebody to really impress, you know, and I, I, I think he really liked the fact that I could sing so many different styles and, and sound like different singers. The guitar playing too was there. So I think for Frank, it was, Oh boy, I don't have to hire a guitar player and a singer. I got, I got it all in one guy here. <laughs> well, but it's Frank Zappa. That's me. You know, that's my, that's my, I, I, I don't know if I could have risen to the occasion in in that situation i mean to me okay here's a guy by 1977 most people are aware that frank zappa is a genius and here he is here you are in the middle of i don't know if it's kentucky or ohio or wherever you were but i mean i just can't even imagine how exciting that must have been to have been singled out by this this legendary genius like a frank zappa well of course it was um you know, it didn't cause any any movements, uh, physical movements in in my body or anything. <laughs> but it certainly made me really, really happy, and I couldn't wait for him to call me. But unfortunately, he went on a long tour, and he didn't call for about six months or so. And wow. by then, I was pretty desperate. Down to my, you know, my rent was due, and everything else was going bad in my life. And then that phone call came, and that really was the most exciting moment when he actually said, okay, here it is, I'm going to fly you out on this date, and here's the songs that I want you to try to figure out how to sing and play. From that point on, then it real, it became real. And, you know, I knew it was up to me to to succeed or fail, and it was very hard to do because those, you know, as you know, I mean, Frank's music is very complicated, odd time signatures. Those weren't the things I was used to doing because I was always in cover bands playing songs from the radio. So you don't play an 11 on the radio. <laughs> no, that's that's true. But you spent a lot of time w with Frank, uh, and, and I know you, you, it was a pretty intense year learning under 
under this guy. Tell tell me about what that was that experience with Frank as a person was like. Well, you know, Frank really just took me under his wing. I, I often thought he thought I was his little puppy or something. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, he treated me like he didn't treat the other guys that way. They were they were all, you know, Berkeley taught, you know, pretty pro guys who'd been on tour, some of them with him already. But I think he saw in me that I was stupid and green, but I had something there if he could nurture it. And the first thing he did is we had, of course, three months of rehearsal scheduled, three months, five days a week. And on Friday, he said, on Friday, I want you to get in the car with me and go to my house and stay over the weekend. I'll show you the things that will be coming up in next week. And the rest of the guys will be getting, you know, sheet music, but you'll already have had the time to try to learn it by rote. So, I mean, really, that was a very, very personal way of, of dealing with me. And I don't think he would have done that for very many people because almost all of the players he ever had, and I think there's almost 200 of them listed somewhere, I think very few of them were were uh, non-readers. Yeah. That's actually a very kind way to have, to have ha- handled you, you know, because you know that you could very easily have you know chewed you up and and spit you out if you really wanted to, because it's probably a list of nine thousand other guys that would have you know killed to have been in your position. He fit, he he said later that he auditioned fifty guitar players. Really? Yeah. Wow. But but you know I mean beyond that on a daily level like when we were traveling I just hung out with Frank. The, the other guys in the band kind of. I don't know. I don't know if they really thought much of me. Maybe they thought I was just not ready, or I don't know what they thought of me. But they did. I didn't hang out with them. They all lived in L.A. <laughs> I didn't. I, I, you know, I lived in a tiny apartment with no car. So I, you know, I just lived Frank music yeah. for twenty twenty four seven every day all those months, and then, and and in the meantime got to be friendly, very friendly. I mean, you know, we would go to dinner and he'd tell me, oh, this place is historic and I ate here with so-and-so and tell me stories. And, you know, it became a more than a musical experience, definitely. Frank saw you, like you said, you know, more than just a guitar player, but a guy who had, you know, tremendous range as a, as a singer. And uh, even the first few times that I heard you with King Crimson and hearing you, you know, do Frame by Frame and Matic Kudasai, and then to to see you uh, in a couple performances on YouTube that I've seen of you doing uh, City of Tiny Lights, you know, you realize that he he clear I mean he clearly understood what a great singer you were. I mean, even if you'd never picked up a guitar in your life, just just your vocals alone would be enough to put you in that Frank Zappa echelon of of musicians. Well, Frank was very very you know uh, interested in vocalists. And some of his bands had vocalists who did nothing but sing, you know, Flo and Eddie and people like that. Right. That that was their only role in the band. So I think he was he was happy to find, you know, here's a guy that can do more than that. Because people don't know this about Frank, but he could either play guitar or he, he could sing. He wasn't coordinated in the ways to do that both. You never will see him in any film play guitar and sing at the same time. You watch, he'll be standing there with his guitar and when he's singing, and then he'll play guitar. So he always needed someone to cover one of those things. And that was my role. When he was singing, I played his guitar stuff. And when uh, I was singing, you know, he, he could do whatever he wanted. So, And, and I think you're also the only guy in the band that could do a Bob Dylan impersonation, too, right? 
Well, I didn't even know I had that in me, but when I mentioned to him one night at, at his house that the song he was showing me, the new song called Flakes, sounded like a bad Bob Dylan song, I started singing it like that, <laughs> just to, you know, just for fun. And that was it. He said, that, that's it. You're going to sing it that way. That's in the show. And, you, and, <laughs> and didn't he introduce you to Bob Dylan at one point? No, he did not. Paul Simon introduced me to okay. Bob Dylan, who was standing in a stairwell uh, at the back of a club, you know. And he, Paul opened the door and said, I want to introduce you. So I opened the door, and there's Bob Dylan standing there. <laughs> and he said, hey, Bob, this is Adrian Blue I've been telling you about. And he goes, I heard about you. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder if he's talking about the Zappa, <laughs> the Zappa thing. I hope that's not what he heard about. You know, because I, I, I mean, it was done in fun. I hope he understood that. <laughs> no, absolutely. So how did you meet David Bowie? Because I know this, I mean, it kind of happened, I mean, was it, was it kind of an abrupt thing where you, playing with Zappa at the time and then met David, or was you off the road by that point? No, this is a pretty interesting story. It's a long story, but I'll tell you how I actually just met him. We were playing in Berlin, and there was a place in the show where Terry Bozio, the drummer, and Patrick O'Hearn and Frank would play a long extended guitar solo just improvising. So the the other people in the band would leave the stage, and as I was leaving the stage, I looked over at the monitor mixer area, and I saw David Bowie and Iggy Pop standing there on the stage. And so I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is really something. I had played a lot of David's songs in cover bands, right? and I have to say something, you know. So I walked over and shook his hand and said, you know, I just want to say to you, thank you for all the great music you've done. I really appreciate what you are and who you are and what you do. And he said, hey, that's great. How would you like to be in my band? <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, I looked back on the stage and I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of working with that guy, you know, right there. <laughs> of course, making a joke. And he right. said, okay, well, I'll meet you back at the hotel uh, and in the lobby and we'll go out to dinner and we'll talk about it. Wow. So how did dinner go? Well, you want to know the rest of that story? It's a fascinating story, I'll yes, tell you. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I went back to the lobby, and there was David and his assistant, Coco, sitting kind of behind a plant on a sofa. And I walked over, and they kind of said, Shh, hey, just go to, your, go to your room. Get in the elevator. Go to your room for five minutes. And then come back down. We'll, we'll have a car waiting outside. I thought, oh, I see. This is like a spy novel kind of thing. So <laughs> i that's what I did. I came out. The, the chauffeur opened the car door. I got in the back of the car with David. He excitedly started talking about everything we were going to do together and the songs and how much he liked what I did. And finally, we arrived at the restaurant. We walked in the front door of the restaurant, and there was Frank Zappa and the rest of the band <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> I was uh, busted, as as you say. And uh, it, so what happened next? David said, well, let's sit down with him. You know, we sat down, and David started trying to be friendly with Frank, and he said, there's quite a guitar player you have here, Frank. And Frank took a <laughs> sip off of his cigarette and said, fuck you, Captain Tom. <laughs> And not Major Tom, by the way, Captain Tom. He had already demoted David down just for 
for being there. <laughs> and then Frank uh, David said, "Well, well, you sure? I mean, could we just talk about this? You know?" And <laughs> Frank took another minute, said, "Fuck you, Captain Tom." <laughs> David gave it one more try. Are you sure you don't want to have hear me out? Uh, <clears throat> Fuck you, Captain Tom. And that was it. So we said, "Okay, thanks," and we got up and we left the restaurant. We went down the stairs, and the chauffeur opened the door, and David said, "I thought that went rather well." <laughs> <laughs> that is true for every word because uh, the year that um, I went to a show once and I met uh, years later I met one of the crew members who was there at that dinner and, and I had told that story on stage because it was it wasn't a gig it was a it was a award show okay and um, I was the MC. And so uh, he told me, that guy said, you know, that you tell that story exactly as it happened. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. So I've never changed a, a word of it because it is the, exactly what I remember. That is a great and, story. Uh, the, the only reason that David Bowie was there was because two nights before we had played in another place in Germany, and, and Brian Eno was there. And Brian Eno knew that David was looking to find a new guitar player for his upcoming tour, so that's why he suggested that David Bowie come and see me playing with Frank Zappa. So the the Berlin trilogy of, of Bowie's career, so you're on the final album, Lodgers, of that of that trilogy. And you know, it it's one of those mythologized moments in, in music between you know him and, and Tony Visconti and and uh, and and Brian Eno. What what's the reality of of that does it was did it really live up to the mythology of it or was it just a, like another another great gig for you well for me it was my first ever recording session with someone <laughs> and it was in lake geneva switzerland <laughs> and it was brian eno and david bowie and as you say tony visconti so it was extraordinary for me plus we were staying in a hotel that overlooked Lake Geneva. My room had a balcony that, uh, you know, right over the lake. And in the room next to me was uh, Tony Visconti and his wife, who was uh, Mary, what's Mary, with the girl who sang, uh, those were the days, those were the days. Mary, what's her oh, name? Gosh. I can't think of her name. <laughs> and anyway, she would wake up in the morning and do these beautiful vocal exercises out on the balcony <laughs> that would wake me up, and it sounded like an angel waking me up. So pretty much everything about it was extraordinary. And I got there after the band had done most of the tracking, and so it left me with a lot of time just being the only one with those three guys. And what was curious about it was... The control room was on one floor, then you walked up these concrete stairs, and the recording room was above it, and there was a, there was a one-way television camera there, so they could hmm. see me. <laughs> I couldn't see them. All I could hear in the headphones is what they would say, and they, they said to me right off the bat, you know, we, we're not going to let you hear any of this music. We want to get your accidental responses. So you'll go upstairs and you'll put the headphones on, music will start, and you just play. Play something with it. Figure it out. Wow. 
And I said, what key? And they said, uh, uh, nope, you don't get to know what key. <laughs> <laughs> so I would hear the drummer, one, two, three, four, and the song would start, and I'd go, uh, okay. <laughs> and they would usually allow me to do that maybe two times, three times through. Uh, and by then, I might even know the, the chorus was coming up now or something. <laughs> But uh, then they would take what they considered the moments that they liked and compile from those one guitar track to make a comp track. Uh, it was, you know, it was totally unlike anything I'd ever heard about in all my years of listening to records. Here's how we make records. <laughs> no, that's not the way we make records. So I was really not prepared for it, but certainly game for it. I mean, they loved it. Every time I came down, they were raving. Oh, there was one place at five minute point three. He played a brilliant thing, you know. So, okay, fine. Great, guys. I read Chris Franz's book from uh, the Talking Heads a while back, and, and I interviewed him too. And he, you know, he talked about you know Brian Eno and and you know just his approach to things. And, you know, clearly with Remain in Light, like I said, it, it, there was a kind of a kind of like a Brian Wilson type of modular thing. It's like everything's you know there. It's like a puzzle pieced together. Where you know I don't know if that was something that he kind of figured out by working with David Bowie for those for those records, or if that was something that he had been working on on his own, but, but, but clearly that was a, a way that he really challenged himself to do. Things and that, that was way. the second record I did. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You know, so I went from, you know, from the, the fire to the boiling pan or whatever you want to call it. You know, I mean, it's two records in a row with Brian Eno and I didn't know anymore how they made records. I was not sure anymore. <laughs> So, <laughs> I thought that you went in and played together as a band, but <laughs> up to that point, two records in, I hadn't done that yet. Now we we, we talked about King Crimson and, and talking about you know finally getting a chance to uh, you know exercise your songwriting you know muscle a, a little bit, and, and like I said, your solo. I mean, you're now about to release your 25th solo record, and so much of of your solo stuff is. The, the the melodies are are fantastic. The singing is great. The guitar playing is is amazing. But there's a lot of very experimental things that kind of go in between, and 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 maybe they're like they're the kind of glue that brings all those albums together. Between working with Bowie and Zappa and Robert Fripp, are all those things that are, are you taking things you've learned from all three of them? And applying it to your solo, your, your solo work, or do you think that would have happened even without working with those guys? Well, I think the bulk of what I rely on, if I'm dipping back into my past knowledge, is things is is things that I learned when I was younger. All the Beatles records and Hendrix and all those kinds of things were the things that I learned the most from. You're kind of set up from that point on. Uh, that you can branch out from there. But, of course, I think everything I learned from the real-life experiences with all those people and more was, you know, invaluable to me. And uh, the last solo record I did, my friend Rob Fetters, I'll bring him up again from the Bears, yeah. uh, the last solo record called Pop-Sided, Rob just raves about that record, and he says what he loves about it is everything I've ever done seems to be represented in this one record. It's like it's all come back now, and I'm I'm covering little bits that you recognize this from there and this from there, but I don't think of it that way, and I don't recognize it that way. To me, it's just using every bit of knowledge I have and, and all my curiosity and imagination. Each time I make a record, 
I'm out to just, you know, do something that I would love to hear. When you're do, when you're taking on new projects now, you know, what, how are you approaching it all? Is, are, you, are you looking to kind of bridge out and just try new creative ventures or is it just, you know, you're kind of in a pocket now and you, and you kind of you kind of feel you're like you're in a comfortable spot? I don't know if I'm comfortable because, you know, um, I don't think that's necessarily going to ever happen because I always want to move forward. Uh, what it is, though, it's I've accepted where I am, who I am, what I do. I've accepted that the things that I'm not. You know, when I started writing uh, as a teenager, I thought I was going to write pop hits, you know. Well, that never really happened. So, <laughs> But I always did like experimental things, even within the Beatles music. If you listen to a song like Tomorrow Never Knows on Revolver, that's as experimental as music, as pop music ever got. Yeah. So I always felt like, well, I've had, I have my foot in both those camps. And now I guess now where I am is I just want to get as much new stuff done in my life, create as much new material and touch as many different things as I can with my creativity, because that's all I'm about, really. That's that's all I'm about. I, I'm not trying to be the world's best anything, or, you know, I, I don't keep up with, it, you know, who's in the top 20 guitar players or any of that kind of stuff. It's not about that for me. It's all about using the imagination I've been given to, to do things that hopefully other people were like, but that's actually secondary to I'm sound sound selfish, but what it's all about is pleasing myself. Because really, I hear things or I see things, and I I want to translate them so other, I can share them with other people. What is art and and music if it's not about communicating? So, you know, it'd be nice if I could communicate to millions of people. Because I feel like you know that's the more the merrier. But a lot of artists in their day, and I'm not comparing myself to any of them, but. Look at Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah, right. He never got to communicate his art to hardly anyone. So <laughs> I feel blessed that I've been able to do all the stuff I'm doing. I'm just going to continue. I, I I hear that answer, and all I can think of is the lyrics to "Oh Daddy," and uh, you know, you're basically <laughs> saying the same thing. You know, thirty you know thirty some odd years ago about exactly that. Your your kids saying, "Dad, why aren't why aren't you a rock star yet?" And uh, you know, the answer in the song and the answer you just gave are very. Very consistent, and that's really interesting. Well, it was fun to do that song, and it was the reason for doing that song was because my little girl was ten years old and really was fascinated with, with you know what goes on in the studio, Dad. And can I sing something? Oh, okay, <laughs> here, let me write something that you can help me do. And it occurred to me that they might be thinking that about now because you know everyone was asking me, well, when are you going to put out a hit record? And I'm like, well. You know, I don't go at it that way. <laughs> I wish I, I wish it was that that easy. That there's a formula, you know. Yeah, I know there's a new album out uh, called Elevator. Where where does that stand? Is that coming out this summer, or is is it being delayed even further? No, it'll definitely be coming out soon. It's it's sitting there, just waiting for a final touch or two. It needs to be mastered. And I got really. Uh, I wanted to have it out right now. I wanted to have it out for a long time. Uh, but I, I, I got, I said this the other day to someone and they agree with me during COVID, I made the record and I also taught myself how to do digital art and kept myself creating and things. Uh, but, but there was nothing I could do, you know, 
And then all of a sudden, there's everything to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> now you've got all of a sudden, oh, you've got to put together a show. You've got to get your gear ready. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Oh, you've got to put your NFTs up. They're ready. Oh, um, uh, uh, you've got to finish out the album. And so all of those things have sort of eaten away at my normal ability to just focus and say, let's get this one thing done. I'm trying to get five things done at once. And the record is suffering from that. But the record is finished I mean, I listen to it, and I'm really in love with this record. I, I really like it a lot. I'm just saying, for me, it, it hits where I was hoping to go. And um, I can't wait to get it out to people. I can't but, wait. Uh, we're at the point now with it where, well, wouldn't it be better until to, to wait until we are doing some shows so there'll be more of an awareness and maybe people will pick up the record. Normally, I wouldn't even put out a new record without touring at the same time because that's where we sell our CDs. People buy them when they come to the show that right. night. And they go, oh, wow, I love this guy. I'm going to buy one of his CDs. What do you got? Oh, well, here's his brand new record. Okay. Otherwise, they may not ever buy it <laughs> because people don't really buy CDs much anymore. Yeah, but you know, I... And, of course, we have it as downloads and all those other things, but... I'm an artist, so I put a lot of artwork in and thought into the packaging. So the CD still matters to me. It, it matters to me too. I mean, I, you know, in 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 some respects, COVID has allowed me to save a little bit of money and you know maybe go and and and, and you know buy some CDs, fill in the gaps uh, of of stuff. I I have always said I love that tactile sensation of having something to hold that an MP3 can never give you. But you know, holding a CD or a piece of vinyl. You know, something else is coming. It was inside the sleeve. I, you know, I appreciate the effort that an artist takes to make something like that a special, a special item. I, I've always appreciated that. Well, when I was a, when I was young, and as I said, I was learning from records. There were little forty fives you put on your little play, uh, record player that your grandmother had given you for Christmas. You know, and then that went away. And then there was vinyl records. You know big albums where the artwork was, was really big, and that, that was fun to design artwork for that. And that went away, and then they shrunk it down to being CDs, and I thought, okay, I got used to that and started loving CDs. And now they've <laughs> shrunken it down to there's no artwork. And, you know, I, I find, and there's no, you know, my words are important to me. Yeah. I want people to be able to read them if they care. And this new record, Elevator, is going to have 38 digital paintings in it. So, I mean, one section is a bunch of paintings spread over two pages. So they're not big paintings, but eight of the paintings, you know, make up or have their own panel. Uh, oh, wow. so, or six of them, I should say. So all total, you get 38 paintings you can look at. And that's, you know, that's why I would rather have someone, can you spend $20, please, just to, to you know. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> you spend more than that at McDonald's, I guess. So. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Adrian, it, it is a real pleasure to finally talk to you. Uh, I did feel like I had to get anybody uh, anybody's permission this time, and it was a real it was a real joy. So thank you very much for spending some time today. My pleasure. I just want everybody to say I love you guys out there, and I'm, I'm not stopping, so keep, keep coming. <laughs> Appreciate it. Adrian, thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Again, Adrian Ballou's new solo record is going to be called Elevator. It'll be out this summer. If you've never heard his solo work, do yourself a favor and discover it. It is wonderful, wonderful music. 
Thank you so much for listening today. I do appreciate it. I'd love to know what you think. You can always email me at backsatrock102.com. We'll see you next time. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.